Coming up on this week's show, author V.E. Schwab takes us inside the invisible life of Addie the Rue. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 263 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello, everyone. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we've got coming up for you next week. Well, welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad that you could join us for another episode of the show. And a little bit of happy news as we get rolling this week. It is our legal wedding anniversary. Nine years ago, this Monday, October 19th, we got hitched in the courthouse. Happy anniversary, yet again, my <laughs> husband. We have so many anniversaries that we celebrate, but we got a lot. This is a nice one. It was it was funny this week. We were watching some movie. I don't even remember what it was, but these two people were thinking about a second wedding after they had done their initial one in the courthouse and got pancakes. And we're like, that was the best wedding ever, <laughs> which is exactly how we did it when we got married legally. I want to take an opportunity to encourage everybody to vote. It's about two weeks out from the elections here in the U.S. And I think this is probably the most important election that I've seen in my lifetime. Certainly a lot is on the line, including probably same-sex marriage and other LGBTQ rights. So we highly encourage you to please make your plan, go vote, and make your voice heard in this all-important election coming up. And with that... Let's talk about some spooky stories, because we are sitting here inside the month of Halloween, and you have got some ghostly tales for us. Yeah, I've been on a gothic romance binge, and I want to kick things off by talking about The Secretary and the Ghost by Jillian St. Kevin. So like the beginning of any good gothic romance, young and innocent Philip, who everyone calls Pip, makes the pilgrimage to the foreboding Foxwood Court. And to pay off the family debt, he's going to work as secretary for the handsome but stern Lord Cross. And putting Cross's papers in order is a chore, but Pip is up to the task. The simmering tension between employer and employee comes to a boiling point when Cross passionately kisses Philip, something he finds he very much enjoys. One day in one of the many parlors, Pip comes across a portrait to which he bears a striking resemblance. He carefully questions the butler and learns that the painting is of Joseph Layton, Pip's distant relative who took his own life and is said to haunt the halls of Foxwood. Any sightings result in tragedy. Late one night, there is a commotion in the study. His lordship has been attacked and members of the staff witnessed Pip as the culprit. But since he was upstairs talking with the butler, it could only have been the ghost of Foxwood. Cross eventually explains to Pip that after getting Conca on the head, the intruder was most definitely not a ghost. And in a quiet moment together, Cross doesn't necessarily declare his undying devotion, because that would be far too improper, but he lets it be known that he definitely returns Pip's affections. And he invites Philip into bed, and they share an amazing, passionate night together. But the next morning, Cross has gone cold, insisting that it can never happen again and saying that the love of a cross is always forbidden and inevitably fatal. Mercy. You don't get more gothic than that. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Cross's frustrating sense of duty and his feelings toward Pip or something and I'm going to come back to in just a minute. Under false pretenses, an interloper arrives at Foxwood. It's Philip's uncle Andrew, the scoundrel who plunged Pip's family into financial ruin. 
Cross makes it clear that he has plans for Uncle Andrew, but if Philip interferes with his wishes, he will no longer have a place at Foxwood. In a huff, Pip prepares to leave, but he encounters the cold, ghostly apparition of Joseph Layton. But instead of being like a harbinger of doom, he thinks that the ghost is a sign. There must be a method to Cross's madness, so Pip stays to keep an eye on scheming Uncle Andrew. Once his plan is revealed, a meeting is set in the neglected orchard on the estate grounds. Imagine the forest in, like, Snow White. It seems that Pip was right about the ghost, and the confrontation eventually leads to the good name of Philip's family being restored, leaving Pip and Lord Cross to plan their future happiness together. Now, the secretary and the ghost is just about everything you could ever ask for in a gothic romance. There's mystery and intrigue, a ghost, duplicitous relatives with nefarious motives, a gloomy manor house filled with dark passages and things that go bump in the night, and most important of all, a brooding alpha male hero who is just as frustrating as he is swoony. Cross runs hot and cold, leaving poor Philip both confused and turned on at the same time. At one point in the story, while he's sorting through Cross's personal letters, Pip realizes that for someone with such a a prickly demeanor, Cross corresponds with a wide variety of people on any number of subjects. And it's then that Philip understands that Cross presents a certain image to the outside world that isn't necessarily jive with his true nature. This is sort of like the Darcy conundrum, because just like Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, Cross is also duty-bound and frustratingly proper at times, and he often comes off, you know, frankly, as a dick. But in reality, he cares very deeply about the people around him, Philip included. Cross might not be demonstrative, but he lets his actions speak for him. Philip eventually learns, along with us, the reader, that Cross has been working behind the scenes all along to resolve Pip's financial problems. He shows his love by taking care of people. And speaking of love, I love pretty much everything about The Secretary and the Ghost because it pays homage to the tropes of gothic romances of the past while giving them a modern, very gay twist. It's romantic and it's sexy and it's spooky without being scary. And while I read it to coincide with Halloween, this story, along with the rest of the series, can be enjoyed any time of the year. Speaking of the rest of the series, The Mystery of Brackenwell Hall is the second book, and it just happens to be our October book club pick. Now, I know I have a habit of picking book club choices that happen to be, you know, in the middle of a series, so I thought I would try and remedy the situation by talking about book number one, Secretary and the Ghost. So I hope I piqued your interest for this particular series by Jillian St. Kevin. I love both of them an awful lot. Our deep dive discussion of the mystery of Brackenwell Hall is coming your way. It's going to be dropping into your podcast feed on October 27th. Now, I also want to quickly discuss something else I read. It's called The Ghost of Hillcombe Hall by Joshua Ian. It is another wonderful gothic romance, and it's about a guy named Jonas. He is a landscape architect who has come to Hillcombe Hall to overhaul the neglected grounds that are surrounding the estate. But when he arrives, the lord of the manor is away on business leaving Vita, the lady of the house, to entertain him, along with her mother-in-law and the dowager countess. When he arrives, everything seems to be on the up-and-up, but he can't help but have a sense of foreboding. Because what gothic romance would be complete without a sense of foreboding? (laughs) Otherwise, what's the point? (laughs) Is there something in the shadows of Hillcombe Hall, or is it just a trick of the moonlight? And what's the deal with the amorous valet assigned to him and his needs? Are the three hostesses simply unconventional, Or is there a darker purpose for their need of Jonas? 
All of these questions get answered in The Ghost of Hillcomb Hall, the recent release by Joshua Ian. And lastly, I want to talk about The Tutor by Bonnie D, which the blurb describes as a combination of The Sound of Music, The Enchanted Garden, and Jane Eyre. That's a heck of a combination. <laughs> yeah, because if that doesn't sell you up front, then I don't know what else I need to say. Except that the author takes all of the gothic romance trope and like cranks them up to 11, which I loved so much. <laughs> the story revolves around a guy named Graham who thinks he's landed the cushy job of being a tutor to a pair of twins who live on an estate in the country. Things, of course, are not as easy as they seem. Graham has to find a way to both entertain and educate the twins while at the same time keeping his hands off their sexily brooding father, Sir Richard. There is a strange darkness present. Evil of some kind is at work, and the disturbing history of the room at the top of the tower is at the center of it all. Graham tries to solve the mystery, while at the same time mend the wounds of the family that he has grown to love. There's a lot going on in the story, and I loved every single second of it. I think the author particularly nails the first-person narrative. Graham is charming and witty, and it's always entertaining to see how he navigates the situation that he's found himself in. Whether it's dealing with the family themes of the Sound of Music plot, or coming to grips with the supernatural elements of the gothicness. I also highly recommend the audiobook of this particular title. It's read by a narrator that I've never encountered before, a guy named Ruri Carter. He does an excellent job and takes the first-person narrative to the next level. It feels like he's telling the story directly to you. Right now, the audiobook for The Tudor is an Audible exclusive. So if you happen to have those credits saved up, I highly recommend spending one of them on this title. So in summary, I really enjoyed The Secretary and the Ghost. Also check out the second book, The Mystery of Brackenwell Hall, which is our October book club pick. I really enjoyed The Ghost of Hillcomb Hall and The Tudor as well. Now, if you're saying to yourself, Will, that's all well and good, but that's a lot of titles with a lot of similar elements. I can see why it might be easy to confuse some of them. Don't worry, we got you covered. We've got that list and links to all of these amazing stories on the show notes page. Just go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. So I didn't do gothic, but my story also fits kind of the Halloween paranormal feel because V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue kicks off with Addie LaRue doing a deal with the devil. Now, over the years of doing the podcast, I've discovered authors and, and read some books that just would not have crossed into my <laughs> – I would have never found these on Amazon, <laughs> to be quite honest. And I'm so glad that happens because otherwise I would have missed out on this incredible book. If you like the way T.J. Klune and Gregory Ash spin sprawling epic tales full of twists and turns that surprise, shock, delight, and give you all the feels, this book is definitely for you. Now, there's a lot happening in this book because it spans 300 years, and I am going to dodge the spoilers as I tell you about this book. What I can tell you is essentially what you're going to hear directly from Victoria in our interview coming up. There are two timelines in play here. There's Addie's past, and we initially meet her as a child in 1698 France. She loves her family, especially her father. She's growing up in a small village. She likes what she likes. Uh, she's like kind of a creative child, enjoys going with her father to the marketplace. But when she gets to be the marrying age, she doesn't really want any part of that. She wants a marriage that is going to have some love and doesn't want to be foist upon a widower who's got children. She's done with it. And <laughs> she goes off and she does this deal with the devil. And what she ends up in strikes here is that the devil can have her soul when she's done with it. 
which essentially is turning her immortal at the same time because of the way the deal is structured. Now, the devil thinks he's going to force her into giving it up sooner than later by making it where everyone around Addie forgets her. She can't be remembered. She can't leave a mark. Nothing. She's a stubborn one, though, and she plans to live, live, and live some more. And the story ends up and covers various points along her history. Now, the other timeline takes place in 2014, which is essentially Addie's present. She's in New York City, and she's really adapted to life well. She knows how to deal with and even take advantage of the fact that she's not remembered and learn how to really carve a life for herself here. But her world is turned upside down when one day she crosses paths with a guy who can, in fact, remember her. Now, before you say, Jeff, you just spoiled everything, remember that I told you that the author herself is going to tell you a variation on this in a moment, and it's also actually in the blurb. Now, there's so much to love in this book. It's First, there's the richness in the writing and the storytelling. Addie is a strong, independent woman. It's why she did the deal that she did after all, because she didn't want to end up with this relatively small life. It's really incredible watching her adapt to her situation, as well as the changing times that are happening around her. I mean, imagine going from the 1700s in France to 2014 in New York City and everything that she would have seen. Victoria packs amazing moments of history and historic people for Addie to witness while showing us also what it was like to be a woman in those days and trying to maintain agency over herself, living in some times where women were second and even third class citizens. It's not all rosy though. I mean, she does go through many hard times as she tries to sort out how to live with the fact that nobody can remember her. So how do you rent an apartment or lodgings when As soon as somebody turns away from you, they're going to forget that you were there in the first place. And along with her on this journey through the decades and centuries is the devil, who is quite frustrated with Addie that she will not give up her soul because the deal's not done until he has the soul. She was deliberate with her words around keeping it until she was done, but she couldn't stop the turn that he'd made on making everyone forget her. Now, Addie and the devil are very strange companions through time. Sometimes he ignores her for years and decades at a time. Sometimes he annoys her, showing up and even moving her to different places and different countries. Sometimes they're even more friends than foes. It's a fascinating and ever-changing dynamic. There's an incredible representation of bisexuality in this book, too, uh, that is really outstanding. Addie is bi, and of course, why wouldn't she be, and love many people across the centuries that she's lived. Now, the guy who remembers her, Henry, is also bi, and in fact, one of the super fun parts of this book is the jealous streak Henry's ex, Robbie, has over Addie every time they meet. And of course, Robbie's forgetting her left and right, so they meet and re-meet very often. It's great to see characters where the bisexuality just is. It's not a big deal. There's no fanfare around it. It's just part of who these characters are and the relationships that they've had. And to find that in a mainstream book that's already been on the bestseller chart since it's released a couple weeks ago is really fantastic. Time and place are practically characters in Addie LaRue. Victoria has a wonderful way of infusing so much into the time that Addie is in, from the social customs to the clothes to how people get around in those time periods. It becomes an almost physical presence in the book. And it seems so right as well that we move through so many periods and places such as Paris, New Orleans, New York, uh, and other places pop to life with a mix of real places and fictional ones. 
And Victoria does a wonderful job of winding the two time periods together. So you're not reading it in a linear order. You're reading it in a very deliberately parsed out manner that's really wonderful. So I am so delighted with this book, especially because I couldn't figure any of it out. At every turn, I was amazed with where the story went. So I highly recommend V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and I will be definitely checking out more of her stories in the future as well. Now, if audio is your thing, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, along with several of the books that we mentioned in Victoria's interview coming up, are available, and you can pick them up from Libro.fm, which is the place where you can purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. So you'll be helping out a vital local part of your community when you get audiobooks here. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. Listeners of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. All you have to do is go to biggayfictionpodcast.com slash librofm, that's L-I-B-R-O-F-M, for all the details. Hi, I'm Laura Von Holt from the Mermaid Podcast, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. The Mermaid Podcast is, you guessed it, all about mermaids. I cover everything from mermaid legends and history to mermaids in pop culture, movies, and TV. My guests include mermaid experts, mermaid historians, mermaid authors, mermaid charities, mermaid tail makers, and even professional mermaids. Yes, being a mermaid is a real job. So whether you have legs or fins, are a mermaid queen or a mermaid at heart, the Mermaid Podcast has something for you. You can find us at mermaidpodcast.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I had a wonderful time talking to V.E. Schwab, who also writes under the name Victoria Schwab, about the invisible life of Addie LaRue. You've already heard that I loved the book. It was incredible hearing the 10-year journey that she was on to write Addie LaRue and also learn about some of her other works as well. So let's get to that interview. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's so nice to be here in the virtual space chatting with you. <laughs> I adored Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and I'm so glad you're here to talk about it because it's honestly one of the most complex and kind of epic books I've read. That, of course, it spans three centuries, so of course it's pretty epic anyway. Yeah, it's an undertaking, isn't it? <laughs> it is an undertaking. That's a good word for it, but it's a beautiful undertaking. How would you describe Addie's story to people in a way that doesn't spoil the amazing things that happen across this book? Yeah, the short version is that it's the story of a, a young woman in 18th century France who is living the kind of life where you look up and it's passing you by very quickly. You blink and 10 years are gone. And she starts to become very afraid that she's going to be born and buried in the same 10 meter plot. And she's coming to terms with the fact that she's not going to live the kind of life that she wants. And really in her early 20s at this time, she's essentially considered a spinster, but at least she's going to be free in the sense that she's going to have bodily autonomy. And then somebody else in the village dies, leaving three young children and a widow. And the village essentially decides, oh, that's fine. Eddie will step in. And all of a sudden she finds that the one thing that she did have, this bodily autonomy, this choice to be alone, but herself is taken away from her. And so in a moment of desperation, she summons the devil and tries to make a deal, tries to get out of this unleavable situation that she finds herself in. And when the devil asks her what she wants, she essentially wants time and she's not quite sure how to achieve that. And so she says that she wants to live forever. 
And because she just, you know, she hasn't lived at all. And when you haven't lived at all, all you can think of is I just want time to live. I don't want to put a, a, a time on that. Anyway, the devil says no, because it turns out that he doesn't get your soul until the deal is done. And if she lives forever, he'll never get her soul. And in a moment of absolute desperation, Addie LaRue says to the devil, you can have my soul when I don't want it anymore. And sensing an opportunity, the devil agrees and grants her the ability to live forever and unbeknownst to her in that moment, curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets. Assuming of course that will wear down her will to survive. And so the book is her story over 300 years of trying to discover how to leave a mark on a world that doesn't remember her and her story over one year in New York City when she meets a young man in a bookshop who does. Which I have to say, now that you've actually said that part, I will say that just made my mouth drop open when that happened. It's like, <laughs> wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I don't consider it so much a spoiler because there are really two timelines of the book. There's the 300 years and there's the one year. And so I think it's fair to say that this is a, a story of her life in both of those timelines. Mm -hmm. What inspired this character for you? Because she's so dynamic and I like how much you talk about embracing her power really because she didn't want that life and she wanted something more for herself and she, she essentially went out and got it. I really like the way you phrase that question because everyone always asks like, where did the inspiration for the book come from? But really this is a book about Addie herself and, and it was born out of my kind of approach to her character because her character was going to be at the center of the story. And it, it came from, I wanted to tell an immortality tale, a Faustian bargain. And I was thinking about life and memory a lot, but for Addie specifically, in trying to tell a Faustian tale, I realized that men and women move through the world in different ways. I, I love Interview with a Vampire. I love these big immortality narratives, but they kind of become about existential ennui as it relates to men, as you know, they do everything, they live everything, they love everyone, they eat everything, and they become tired and bored. And I didn't want to give her that option. And she didn't get that option anyway, because women throughout history don't get to move through spaces in the same way. And so even without cursing her to be forgotten, she wouldn't have had that luxury. But on top of that, you know, she has this curse in addition to her immortality. And so it really becomes a question of willpower. What kind of person survives, even thrives under this curse? And so I couldn't let her give in to existential ennui. I couldn't allow her to get bored. I couldn't make her the kind of person who bemoans their state for very long. I had to give her what I came to call a stubborn hope and a defiant joy. This belief that it is worth the pain of living, worth the discomfort of her situation because there is so much living to do. And it has to be a life without ego in many ways because she can't take credit for things even when she finds out how to influence them. She can't leave marks. She can't be remembered. It is essentially a very lonely existence, but she is so fiercely, stubbornly optimistic about the potential of life that she is able to carve her way through that. And so it really became about asking who thrives under these circumstances? Because spite really only carries you so far and hope has to carry you the rest of the way. I think you touch on a central element for me in the book because yes, in her early days of trying to navigate what this meant, wasn't awesome for her by a long shot because she wasn't understanding what, what was happening. She didn't know how to survive and she figured it out. And as she moved on from there, she did become this very strong, 
hopeful. She always had hope, sometimes a little despair, but always hope. And that even made this a, the, the right book to read in these times that we live in. Absolutely. Because she found a way through all this for hope to survive. And it's a good message now. I mean, it's always a good message, but particularly now. I mean, that's the weirdest thing about it, right? I've been asked a lot over and over again, how does it feel for, to have the book coming out in this year, in this time, in this hellscape, whatever you want to call it? And I mean, at first I was devastated because I spent 10 years writing this book. And you have no idea what the world's going to look like when it releases, but this certainly isn't the year that I dreamed of for myself or for this story. You know, it was the biggest book of my career. My publisher had conceived of all of these extraordinary things for it you know, parties and opportunities that I hadn't even dreamed of. I, I came up very small through books and I grew just a little bit in scale with every book. This is book number 17, right? I had all of these incredible dreams for what would happen when I actually got to release Addie LaRue. And obviously nothing about this year has gone as planned for anyone <laughs> under mm -hmm. any circumstances. And I will admit that for a few months, I was just deeply sad. I, I was deeply sad for myself and for the story and for what I perceived as the missed opportunities. And then I began to realize as advanced reviewers began to read this book and as I saw them find some measure of solace in it and some measure of grounding as well as escape. And as I realized that this really was a story in so many ways about perseverance through difficult times and through holding on in the belief that the future will hold for you more incredible things that this in many ways might be exactly the right year for Addie LaRue to hit shelves. And part of that is accepting that like books don't have an expiration date, right? This will always be the year that Addie LaRue began her journey in publication. That doesn't mean it will also be the end of that journey. But I do think that, you know, my own ego and feelings aside, I think perhaps this might exactly be the right time for this book. Mm -hmm. I think it's why I didn't want it to end. I wanted to finish it before we talked, but I also didn't want it to end. <laughs> at the same time because it was so good. I mean, that's the really, that's the difficult thing about writing a standalone as well. Like I'm already starting to get asked by people like, so there's, is there a sequel? And I'm like, no, like that's the book. And I, you know, I traditionally write series. Standalones are kind of the brief commas in the sentence of my career so far. But I felt so strongly from the beginning that this would be a standalone, but hopefully it's the kind of standalone that lends itself to rereading. Because I think when you hit the end of a book and you feel you need more, then that's the failing of the author. But if you hit the end of the book and you just really wish there was more, then that is the best thing that the author can ask for because then go back to the beginning and start again. Like, I want people to want more. I hope that people don't feel they need it more. It's interesting to me putting on my author hat how you're approaching it as a standalone too because of course there's so much in this story in Addie's life that you could mine for additional books because she does live for 300 years. And yet you're saying this is the story you wanted to tell. And so it is a standalone. Yeah. I mean, almost to a T. So I, I mean, talking, putting on author hats for a moment, right? I have a really hard time writing books. I have a really <laughs> hard time with the drafting process because when you have an idea, it's this beautiful glowing orb in your mind. It's pure potential energy. And the act of writing it down is like taking that beautiful glowing orb and smashing it against a wall. And what you're left with is kind of this broken, very mundane object that bears almost no resemblance to that beautiful thing in your mind. And then the act of revision is slowly, painstakingly piecing that orb back together. And it's never going to be the thing that was in your mind. 
but revision is the act of trying to bring it close to the authenticity of that thing. And I will say that whether or not people love this book, the final product is the closest thing to that glowing orb that I have ever achieved in my career. So it was very much meant to be the shape that it is. Considering the two timelines that you've got, it's a pretty straight line in terms of the plot that goes on with Henry because it is this year that happens. But looking at the rest of the book and those hundreds of years before she got to Henry, how did you decide what parts of history to let us see her in? Oh, that's such a good question because it was not simple, right? Dealing with 300 years of history and travel, it's not as though she stays in one space. But at the same time, I didn't want this book to be a travelogue. She doesn't just go everywhere. She is a person with an agenda and limitations because of her curse. And it does guide where she goes and when. So much of the kind of a year's worth of the work on this book was just figuring out that path through the past. And a lot of it you know, thematically, wanted I wanted it to go hand in hand with where she was at in her own emotional journey, where she was at. She kind of goes through a five stages of grief for her own life, right? And mm-hmm. at the same time, she's going through stages of her relationship with the devil because they do, over time, have a very complicated relationship. He is, for centuries, the only person who remembers her. And they they move through this arc of absolute hatred and animosity into antagonism and into something more camaraderie based because of the fact that they simply become the commonality in each other's lives. And so a lot of what I chose was based on where I wanted her to be emotionally and where I wanted her to be in relation to her relationship with the devil. And so obviously I knew there were some historical beats that I needed to hit, especially as a French woman that Addie would be, you know, she was going to be in Paris at the time of the salons. She was going to be in Paris at the time of the French Revolution. And I knew that there were some moments in art and culture that I were going to use to to guide myself as well, because this is a book, I say it's like Forrest Gump, but for art and culture instead of (laughs) politics, right? Which is that like, she begins to graze up against art and history in that way. This becomes the way in which she can leave a mark. And so I started to look at when were there massive flourishes in Western Europe, especially because that's where I kind of confined her to in the beginning in art and culture. When was Vienna redesigned? When was Paris redesigned? When were these blossoms of beauty? Uh, Because that's a commonality between her and the devil as well. The devil sees himself as a patron of the arts and she becomes a muse. They both foster and are drawn to the hedonistic landscape. And so all of these things became factors. And there were obviously more places that I visited and researched than ever would make it into the book. And I think if I ever did write more, they would probably be more of Addie's past timeline, not, Mm -hmm. I don't think that I can see myself writing beyond the timeline of the book in the future sense. And I guess leads to the question of how much is on the cutting room floor? (laughs) You know, very little because I'm an additive author, meaning I tend to write very slim first drafts and then revision becomes a process of shoring them up. I think part of me is so anxious about not being able to pull off a draft that I simply like need to get bones down. But there were certainly ideas. I don't want to call them like I, I never got scenes that then got chopped entirely. They would always get repurposed or transformed. There were you know, many pieces of dialogue between Addie and the devil that I had conceived of over years that never made it in, but obviously weren't right for the story because 
you know, writing a book over the course of 10 years means letting go of a lot of past iterations of story in your mind and past moments and not really forcing them simply because your ego wants them to be there. I would say that, you know, it was more a sense of there were ideas that I had for two different scenes that needed to become fused into one. There were things that never really got to be on the paper in a full sense, so that didn't need to be fully cut. But I mean, the revision that I did between first draft and the second was massive. So there was a lot that got moved around. There was a lot that got revised, but I don't think things got wholesale excised from the narrative. And so it's harder for me to think of like what's missing. It seems, a very compelling thought exercise to work through how Addie adapted to life across the years, not just adapting to the idea that she is forgotten at every turn, but also just how women evolved over the centuries and what they could do, what they could not do, and how that must have seemed a very gradual progression to her. Oh yeah. I feel like she sees it through fashion, right? Like she's so annoyed at female fashion all the time because it's so cumbersome and she just like she just wants to wear trousers like she just wants to get to that point in history where she gets to wear something that feels like it is freedom it is looser Mm -hmm. one of my favorite passages in the book is when she is impersonating the man yeah because it's an easier way for her to move through that moment And the whole interplay that happens there was just really wonderful. Yeah, I wish I could. I mean, here's the thing. And I have done this previously in books as somebody who has kind of a complicated relationship, not only to their sexuality, but to their gender identity. Like I'm always tempted to put my female characters in menswear to have them masquerading as a man, as an adaptive element, mostly because it's how I feel more comfortable. I did it with Delilah Bard and Shades of Magic. And I wanted to resist that temptation. And so what I did is I made Addie a very feminine looking person, just naturally, the kind of face that would not easily stand up to scrutiny and could not pass herself off because it felt like it would have been the obvious solution to just have Addie spend 200 years masquerading as a young Mm -hmm. man. And so I gave her the features that would not allow that. And that's so we still get to have that moment with her, with Remy, where she's masquerading as a young man, but knows that this only works after dark when she kind of keeps her distance and nobody looks too close. But I knew that I wanted to prevent myself from the comfort of being able to give her that option throughout history. And how much research ended up in all of this? We hinted on it a little bit before that you obviously had to research history. You've got to research places and you've got this nice interplay between actual places, actual history, actual people, and then totally made up fictional material as well. I mean, there was a lot of, I'm not gonna lie, there's a lot of research, but just as when you write a book and it goes through massive rounds of editing and yet somehow a typo ends up on that page, like 15 people read that book and looked for any problems. I feel like no matter how much research you do, there's like a late stage damn it moment like there is there is and there's one that's in the book I'm not gonna say what it is that's gonna get corrected and it was just I don't know how it never got caught when you're dealing with so much history it feels like inevitable but I remember in late stage revision up until like I don't know how I messed this up I do know a great deal about France I live here quite a lot of the time but for some reason maybe because I just can't fathom that Sacre Coeur was that recent 
originally, now in the book, she and Remy, this young man that she meets in Paris, go to Notre Dame. And originally, they went to the steps of Sacré-Cœur because I wanted to have that view over the city. And I didn't find out for some reason until like an actual advanced reader said, like none of the proofreaders caught it. I obviously didn't catch it that Sacré-Cœur hadn't been built for like a hundred years, mm. like in that moment, like it was a full century off. And all I could think was, oh my God. Like I read <laughs> books upon books on the salon scene of the 1750s through 70s. I did so much work. And then something like that slips by. And so I think, you know, I did do a huge amount of research for it. I also presented myself a challenge because I was dealing with setting as character in so many places because I needed every place she go to feel like that place. You know, for 10 years, Abby was in the backdrop of my mind as I would travel for work. And every time I would land in a city in a country, I would ask myself if I only had a page to convey the heart of this city, what would I say? And so it really became because I knew that we were not going to spend very long in any one of those flashbacks. How could I distill a city down to a few essential ingredients? Wow. And on top of the history, you've got all this art too. The art descriptions that appear at the beginning of each individual part. How did you pick your art? And was that always part of it or did that come at some point later in the process? Of getting the it art written. was always part of the story, featuring the art pieces more didactically at the beginning of each part was a thing that happened in revision. So that was a decision mm -hmm. made after the draft. But I knew I wanted the art to be crucial because one of these themes that we explore is this concept that ideas are wilder than memories. And so Addie discovers over the narrative that she can nudge art, that she can influence artists. And it, you know, at the time, Several, several years ago, I was reading Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, which is a book on creative examination and, and artistic. And I, I'm always fascinated by the personification of ideas. So like muses fascinate me, this idea of an origin for creativity. And I think, you know, as a writer yourself, you'll know sometimes we can't track back to the exact thing that makes us think a thing, that makes us think another thing and so on. We can't get all the way back to seed. And so I loved this idea that Abby might be that seed that some people can't remember exactly where those three notes that the beginning of that song that became the song that made them came from that they just came to them on a wave of inspiration and the whole question is like what if there was a person you know what if you woke up with those three notes in your head because Addie told them to you the night before and Addie didn't stick in your mind but those three chords did mm -hmm. and so I really wanted to explore that especially because Okay, so this is how I, my brain comes from like 50 different places down to one idea. A couple of years ago, one of my best friends is a photographer, and we had gotten into a really in-depth discussion about how we pretend that photographs tell the truth. As a photographer, she was like, but that's not true at all, because like, not only, we weren't even talking about digital manipulation, but about how in choosing the lens and choosing what to show, the frame, what to show and what to exclude, the photographer is lying inherently. And this concept of visual truth would go on to inspire so much of the narrative, both from Henry, who has this interest in the lies that photographs tell, and in Addie, who I made the decision could not be captured by photograph or film, but could be interpreted and rendered through art. And so that became one of the concepts I really wanted to explore, which is 
And one of the reasons that she has these seven freckles, because I felt like you could erase so much of her and that could be the thing which becomes interpreted, whether it's a wood sculpture of a bust with seven holes drilled through, whether it's an abstract night sky that one of the artists makes with seven star dots. I wanted this to be a thing of Addie could be interpreted through other people's eyes. And it's a fascinating process as that happens various times through the book too, how that manifests herself and how she can nudge it. Yeah, and it's that, it's interpretation, right? And it's also the thing that forces you to like, you can't have ego and artists, there's always a measure of ego there. And Addie as the subject doesn't get to have that ego. She doesn't get to have that. But what she does get are these physical proof that she exists, that have mm -hmm. followed her through history and that she revisits and that she thinks about these moments that are whenever she doubts her own veracity, whenever she doubts that she did these things, because memory is kind of one of those crazy things, memory and madness, and she has a flawless memory, but she has gone mad several times because of it, that these are almost anchors throughout her existence that, that track forward with her. Among the many things I liked in this book is that Addie and Henry are so comfortably bisexual, mm -hmm. which is how we end up talking about this book on the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> And it totally makes sense for Addie to have had many loves through the years. But what led you to create the characters this way and for both of the characters to be bisexual as the, the driving romance through that year of Addie and Henry? I resist this concept of straight default. Like I just don't buy into it. And I would rather explore casual queerness in my stories because one of the things I, I don't like is that so often when we include queer characters that their queerness has to be a plot point. Like that's the reason for their inclusion in the narrative is because mm -hmm. they're gay or bisexual or queer. And I didn't want that. And so what I wanted to do in this narrative because I knew that Addie was going to be in essentially a straight presenting relationship was I wanted to make sure that I included space to say that neither one of them is straight that and that their past relationships obviously inform so much of their identity, but it's not because of the sexuality of those past relationships. And I wanted to normalize it. I think I just want to create that space where we need the normalization. We need to stop having these monolithic representations of queer identity. And the only way to do that is to have enough characters actually be queer. And it made sense because it also feels like so often when we have queer character in the book, they're the unicorn. But like, as you know, like we find community, we find our tribes, we, we form that found family. And I wanted, because Addie couldn't have that found family, I very much wanted Henry to have it. Plus on top of that, there's just a massive amount of erasure of bisexual men. And I wanted to give him that. And I, I wanted to explore the spectrum. I didn't want everyone in the story to have to present one way. I didn't want to create confinement when there didn't need to be any confinement. And I thought that one of the ways in which I could do that was simply by having a casually queer presence throughout the entire story. It's one of the things I love in books where it doesn't have to be explained, over-explained, become a driving plot point, as you said. And what I really liked with Henry is that he managed to still be friends with his most recent yep. male <laughs> ex who keeps coming back, who I swear has a tinge of jealousy running through him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a possessiveness. A little um, bit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that. I didn't want Robbie to fall out of his life. And obviously things get more complicated as the story goes on. I guess it was just, I didn't, to be honest, like I didn't think about it with 
as much agenda as it sounds like as I'm presenting. I just wanted it to be there. I wanted yeah. it to be there on the page because letting it just exist on the page allows somebody to come along and say, oh, a mirror, right? Because so often we're deprived mirrors. So often we make things exceptional. And by exceptional, it's the kind of othering, right? And I just want to be like, it's there. It's right there. You're there. Like, you're valid. This is valid. Everything's valid here. This isn't exceptional. This is just life. This is the, the world as it really is. Exactly. And for Addie to have lived hundreds of years, of course, she's going to run into all kinds of characters who would be marginalized, either because of the very time that they're in or over time that those characters would always be marginalized for some reason. And so also, they're part of the fabric of life, which is also, I just so wonderful. On the idea of Addie being straight, like there's just, well, she, yeah, sure, she might have started out with like an aesthetic ideal of her love. She's 300 years old. Even if right. she didn't start, like even if she wasn't born bisexual, the simple like desire to continue, she has such a voracious love of, of living and of exploring that the idea that she would have ever limited herself in that way is for her, like it's more an organic assumption of, I'm sure she, you know, she was born and raised in a time where that would not have been considered okay. And where it probably took 50 to a hundred years for her to break down her own assumptions or what's, you know, drilled in, but 300 years is a lot of time. And I refuse oh, yeah. to either of our three leads was ever really straight. I, I think about this. I know that straight people exist. I'm not trying to erase them, but I do think there's a lot of, you know, conditioning that we experience in society that is something that then we have to take time to unpack for ourselves. I mean, I came out when I was 27, 28. So that means that like, I was a very very closeted gay teen who could not have told you, like if you had asked me, I would have said I was straight because I hadn't done that unpacking yet. I hadn't done that deconditioning yet. And so I think making space for that, it's wonderful to see kids and teens who already know that about themselves, but some of us take longer. And I just think I have such a resistance to checklist diversity, to this concept that we include people, but we include it for the wrong reasons. So it's like, if you're going to have queer representation, like it better be intrinsic. It better feel authentic. You can't just be like mentioned on page 52, oh, he's gay because you want to like be able to say that you have queer representation. But I also think that there's a massive chasm between casual representation and like wanting a brownie point and making it the only reason that they're on the page, right? There's just a full mm -hmm. spectrum there of accountability that needs to be on our shoulders as creators to say like, okay, like how is it reflected in their character and understanding because we're not monolithic that for some people their sexuality and gender representation is a massive part of their identity and for some it's not for me i'd say that like my queerness is like 15 percent of me right like it just is not the driving thing in my life well said. <laughs> so this book was my first by you and for oh, me and maybe no. other listeners who are not familiar, tell us more about the books of both V.E. Schwab, which is the name you have on The Invisible Life of Adela LaRue, but also Victoria Schwab. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So yeah, so I write as both Victoria Schwab as V.E. Schwab. Traditionally, I've written as Victoria Schwab when I'm writing for children and teens, because I've got like a middle grade series called City of Ghosts, which is essentially 
about a 12 year old girl who almost drowns and the ghost boy who saves her life. And now they're kind of inextricably connected and can cross the veil together and see the ghosts on the other side. And her parents are <laughs> TV paranormal investigators. So they travel to the most haunted cities in the world. So the first book is set in Edinburgh, Scotland, the second one in Paris, France, and the third one in New Orleans. So things like that. I'm, and I write as Victoria Schwab. And as for my teen novels, I write as Victoria Schwab. And then on the adult side, I write as V.E. Schwab. And the very like PC answer is like, so that children don't stumble upon my adult work accidentally. And the very honest sure. answer is that because adult science fiction and fantasy is a super sexist industry mm -hmm. traditionally. And there's a lot of people who won't pick up a book if it's by a woman, which is something I get told often by my fans, which is really kind of a messy thing to unpack. But yeah, mm, so yes. I've, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I've written everything across the spectrum from that City of Ghosts series to the Monsters of Verity books, which are in the YA space and really an examination of what happens when violence reaches a point in society that it begins to breed actual monsters. What if like the aftermath of violence is not just thoughts and prayers, not just, you know, shell casings and smoke, but what happens if we as humans begin to usher forth incarnations of that violence? What does it mean? So probably I'm best known for my Shades of Magic series, which I write as V.E. Schwab, uh, a darker shade of magic, a gathering of shadows, and a conjuring of light, which are about a magician with the ability to move between alternate versions of London officially as a messenger between the crowns and unofficially as a smuggler of rare artifacts. And he comes into possession of something he absolutely should not have. And before he can get rid of it, he gets his pocket picked by a cross-dressing thief named Delilah Bard. And the series unfolds from there. And so that's more um, like a love letter to Avatar The Last Airbender and Full Metal Alchemist and elemental magic and just a lot of things that I'm deeply passionate about. Also a very queer series, which I love because I get to explore representation in different ways. And, and as the series continues, I'll get to continue to explore representation. And I just really like whenever I can have that representation in a fantasy context, mm -hmm. because again, it's about normalizing. And when you write fantasy, you have the incredible luxury of getting to redefine what is normal. And there always have to be power dynamics and hierarchies, but you can write a world in which it doesn't have to be sexuality or race. It can be something else. Obviously, I'm going to need to pick up more of your books. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. <laughs> They're all a bit different, though. The one I guess I didn't talk about at all is Vicious. I wrote a supervillains series. So essentially, I wrote a series that's about the idea of like, if there are no heroes, who do you as the reader root for? So it's about two college students, Victor and Eli, who discover the key to superpowers are near-death experiences. And they set out to manufacture their own supernatural abilities by controlling their own deaths and resurrections. And everything goes heinously wrong. Oh, wow. Now, I'm glad you mentioned that one because that sounds pretty amazing. It's very much like... <laughs> Professor X and Magneto via The Boys Amazon series. Oh, wow. Well, there's another book for the TBR. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't sit still for very long. I don't like to write the same thing twice either. So a friend of the podcast who is also an author was so crazy excited I was talking to you because she's a, she's a huge fan. Aww. And so I said, you could give me one question to ask her. So she came up with, she writes so beautifully. I'd love to know how she's gotten there to create such beautiful prose. Oh my goodness. 
Practice is such a trite answer. So I'm not going to give that. What I will say is I come from poetry. And so I've always been very attentive to cadence and syllabolic rhythm. And, but the voice is the weirdest thing, right? Because you can't really teach it, but you also have to get better at it. And I will say that I think you almost learn the kind of prose that you want to write through exclusion. Like you kind of look at other people's writing and you say like, oh, I love that. And you then you say, I don't love that. Or this speaks to me, this doesn't. And then you just write a shit ton of words. Like <laughs> I feel like, and I mean, and I try to write differently. I, I, I definitely feel like I have a thing which makes my books mine in that there is this kind of cadence or rhythm to it all. That's just the way I'm wired. I grew up on Shel Silverstein and William Blake and Baudelaire and all of these like really over the top poets who had a fascination with rhyme and rhythm. But I will say like, I just, I read a lot. And I read specifically out of my zone of what I write and out of my zone of assumptions of what I will like. So I probably read 100 to 120 books a year. And in that is everything from poetry to memoir, nonfiction, historical, fantasy, romance, sci-fi, literary, like everything, right? And I say this all to say that in reading, you feed this story monster. And in reading, you begin to develop especially in reading broadly, you really just develop a sense of your own internal rhythm, your own internal voice and cadence. It's something that I feel like I'm so glad I don't have to teach because I don't know how I would. And so looking at my own education in that way, it has been a product of write relentlessly and read voraciously. Are there particular authors that you point to who are inspirations? Anyone who follows me online knows I'm a massive Neil Gaiman fan and have been for a very long time. I My family's English. So this is the weird reason that I became obsessed early on with Neil Gaiman is that I, if you hear him ever narrate any of his work, which he does, there's such an incredibly lulling cadence to it. And his accent is almost identical to my family's accent. And so it, I grew up kind of like almost thinking of it as being told a bedtime story by a member of my family. There was just always kind of a wonderfully soothing, almost boat rocking rhythm to it. So Neil Gaiman is somebody whose work I have always admired. Also because I admired the expansiveness of it when I was growing up and being told like, oh, you need to pick. Are you going to be a poet? Are you going to be a novelist? Are you going to be a short story writer? Are you going to be a screenwriter? And then you see an author like Neil, a creative like Neil, who didn't pick and mm -hmm. just does it all and manages to carry that voice, that very, very specific voice through everything he does. I wanted to be able to do that. And I found that deeply inspiring. Also, I look to Diana Wynne-Jones and to more recent ones like Aaron Morgenstern or Susanna Clark. I remember, I think Susanna Clark sticks in my head because up until I read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it would have told you that was exactly the opposite of the kind of book that I like to read. It was really long and it had footnotes and it was really slow. And it was a book that made me eat my words. Like I would have put on paper, it was everything I don't like in a book. And then I read it and I realized that you can pull off anything as long as you do it well. So I think I've taken different things from different authors that I admire, whether it's their world building or their voice or their like ambition and it's constantly changing every year. But I would say like on my shelves, it's like Neil Gaiman, Donna Tartt, Diana Wynne-Jones, 
Yeah, those are probably my triptych, my trifecta. And speaking of books, what's something you've read recently that you would recommend to this audience? Okay, so probably my favorite book of the year is so counter to what I normally read. And it just shows you what a hellscape this year is. Because I normally go to like the very dark, the very kind of like Dexter-esque or the just like sinister stories. I read a book this year called The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. Oh, so good. It's like a big gay sweater, right? It is like a cozy, happy, heartwarming, beautiful kind book and i've been recommending it to everyone that i know yeah i'm a big fan it's certainly in my top books of the year and i can't envision anything coming out that's going to knock it off the top slot for the year for me it's just wonderful i mean yeah. and it, it's wonderful and my mom read it and she loved it my dad read it and he's such a difficult reader and he loved it like i've yet to meet someone who didn't respond to it yeah tremendous book what can you tell us about what might be coming up for you next <laughs> oh my god it's always an ordeal we were talking earlier about not giving away secrets between like what i'm allowed to say and what i'm not what i can say is that the third book in my city of ghosts series my middle grade series comes out in march called bridge of souls and i'm writing a comic book series set in the vicious world called extraordinary and i'm working on the next book in the shades of magic series because there were like two arcs so the first three books came out and now the second three i'm working on and i've just finished work or i've just finished drafting so the work has really just started on a book that i haven't been allowed to reveal yet but that i've been saying is the secret garden meets crimson peak that's an interesting combo like the next year (laughs) (laughs) what's it like adapting for comic book I love it. Well, and I'm not really adapting because it's new stories set in the world that I've already ah, made. Okay. Adapting what I've already written. I think that would be easier and I would love that a lot, but I'm creating new content. I had written in the Shades of Magic universe, a, a comic book series called Steel Prince that was 12 issues and that, that just finished. And I, I loved it. And so now doing that again, I just think translating to a visual medium is so nice because writing can be intensely lonely and visual mediums require collaboration. So it's just kind of an open conversation and you're working and then you get to see art. It's basically like professionally commissioned fan art. It just kind of ticks all of those delightful creative boxes. Mm -hmm. I love seeing authors get involved in different types of adaptations and universe expansions like that. It's always exciting. Yeah, I love it. It just is different. They're different flavors. And how can people keep up with you online to keep track of all this stuff that's coming next? The best way to find me on the internet is that I basically live on Instagram. And so I'm just V.E. Schwab, V-E-S-C-H-W-A-B over there. I post almost every day usually more than once a day in the stories, but every day. And it's just like the easiest way to keep up with everything from whatever I have in the works to, I do talk a lot about creativity and like the creative hurdles and headspace and anxiety. And I also, you know, talk about my kitten and random stupid things in my life. So like, there's a good balance (laughs) there. just like neuroses and creativity and like pictures of my pets. Perfect. (laughs) We will link to that and everything else that we've talked about in our show notes for the episode. So everybody will be able to find what they need from that. Victoria, it has been so awesome talking to you. Congratulations on the release of Addie LaRue. And I can't wait to see what you come out with next. Thank you so much. 
This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Victoria for such a wonderful conversation. Now, a couple things have come up since uh, I spoke to her a few weeks ago. She mentioned, you know, several things that were coming up, but she also kind of hinted that there were things she couldn't discuss yet. And one of those has actually been revealed recently. Her short story, First Kill, which first appeared in the Vampires Never Get Old, Tales with Fresh Bite anthology, has been picked up as a YA vampire series for Netflix with Emma Roberts producing. And that is definitely something to look forward to there as I've been reading about it. She also mentioned in the interview uh, a little bit of her own coming out experience. And in the first part of October, as part of Oprah Magazine's series on coming out, Victoria was one of the people who got to write an essay. And I highly recommend that you check it out. It is a very moving and powerful piece. She's written it essentially as a story. And it it very much carries some of the vibes that you could see in her writing with Eddie LaRue. It's a really great piece that I encourage you to read. And of course, I'll have a link for that in the show notes. All right, everyone. I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Coming up next in episode 264, we've got a special treat for you as Jeff talks with author David Levithon from an online event Jeff hosted recently for Barbara's Bookstore in Chicago. I can't tell you how amazing this event was for me. David Levithon is such an inspiration with the books and the way he tells stories, so it was really amazing to get to talk to him. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and have discovered some new books to add to your TBR pile. And if not, don't worry, we will be back again next week with more recommendations and author interviews. So until next time, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.